Six Figure Developer Podcast, a podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is John Douglas. John is a technical product manager, YouTuber, and podcaster. He enjoys exploring the systems, strategies, and tools that help us live happier, healthier, and more productive lives. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so before we jump into the meat of things, uh, would you give us, our, our listeners, a little introduction to yourself, you know, perhaps tell them how you got started uh, in the industry? Sure. Uh, so I have quite a, a long background, even though I'm quite young. Um, I started in the industry at least uh, around high school. Um, so high school, I got involved in, uh, you know, HTML, CSS, vanilla JavaScript, all that type of stuff. Um, and I kind of wanted to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So I said, all right, well, maybe a, a computer science degree is the way forward. Um, computer science at the time was the iPhone was just exploding. Um, people were really interested in kind of web as well, desktop. And um, I kind of thought, okay, well, maybe a degree is for me. So I enrolled in college, um, of course, computer science. And then I just kept having these jobs in between. Um, so I'd have like a college job where the college would actually pay me to develop their applications. So like web, mobile, um, even desktop applications too. I got a lot of cool experience that way because nobody knew how to do any of that, even the the staff. <laughs> so we had like one or two mentors, uh, who were really great and would help uh, all the students. And we created this whole, um, mobile group called La Guild. And it was basically this idea that the students can come and go as they would, but we can just continuously have jobs of like, hey, go port this mobile app. Hey, go port this web app, uh, all these other different types of things. And I ran that for a while. That was really fun. Um, but uh, I've always kind of been a like .NET developer at heart. Um, most of the technologies I, I worked with were C Sharp, uh, VB.NET, um, even Visual Basic 6 at one point in my career. And so I uh, had quite a, quite a long um, extended kind of beginning to it. And um, now we're kind of seeing a lot of evolution with uh, C Sharp and .NET. And I mean, we've gone, you know, <laughs> I feel like a whole decade in maybe third, like, I don't know, just so quick, just gone by so fast. Very cool. So what is, uh, how, how does that bring you to what you do now? Yeah. So uh, what was interesting is uh, once I kind of went through college, um, I graduated with my CS degree and I was kind of like, okay, what do I want to do? Where do I want to work? Uh, who do I want to be? Um, and I had a lot of different jobs in between, um, of course, at the university, but also uh, I started to work professionally in enterprise. So I got my first uh, real remote job working for a collision management uh, software firm called Solera at the time. Uh, and so we built software for whenever you would 
get in a wreck with your car. We would do the estimates and also, you know, um, give the quotes and all that stuff to the insurance providers. So that was always a fun thing. That was all in uh, Visual Basic 6, believe it or not. And we had to do some .NET 2 interop, which was quite a challenge at the time because, I mean, I was like, 18 years old or 19 years old. I didn't even know what that even meant. Um, but uh, we ended up doing it and that was really cool. Um, kind of fast forward a little bit um, with all that .NET experience, I started getting involved in mobile. Um, the Android operating system was coming up and uh, really wanted to get involved in what Google was making. And so I started learning Java on the side and uh, kind of became a contract Android developer for a while. And once uh, once I started to kind of land contracts and work for various startups and try to get their ideas off the ground and many, many of them failed, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, eventually kind of landed and saw this opportunity called um, it was Zimian at the time. And Zimian uh, was later rebranded as Xamarin, this idea of mobile technologies um, for uh, basically running mono on iOS and Android. I had this kind of unique fit of I knew a lot of Android and I knew a lot of .NET and I kind of wanted to pursue that for a while. So then I started to get involved in Xamarin um, and worked with their group for a um, long time, actually. Uh, so we did a lot of just every type of job possible, um, worked in support roles, worked in product roles, worked in some marketing roles here and there, engineering roles. Uh, and, you know, I kind of went from um, the startup to then being acquired by Microsoft um, to where I work uh, today, where I worked on Xamarin products for, uh, I'd say, about four years or so um, after acquisition, and now I'm working at Nougat. So that's kind of how I got to where I am. Uh, so so what's it like? Is, is Nougat a separate org then at Microsoft, or, or how is that separation maintained? Sure. So uh, there's a lot of different orgs, especially at Microsoft and under what's known as the developer division. Um, you know, you have different types of, uh, you know, hierarchies and groups and whatnot, but uh, kind of I think of it as three main ones. Um, the first one would be kind of your .NET group, which is kind of like the runtime, the SDK tools around .NET, things like that. Uh, you have a Visual Studio group, um, which is more on the Visual Studio IDE tooling and so on. And then Nougat is kind of its own entity. Um, it's under the .NET Foundation and kind of operates independently of both Visual Studio and .NET. So it kind of sits um, as its own. And we're, of course, historically .NET developers, uh, the three of us here on the podcast, um, and, and quite familiar with NuGet. But for, for those maybe just joining in or, or uh, maybe not as um, knowledgeable or, or experienced in what NuGet is or what, what NuGet provides us. Can you maybe give us a, a brief rundown on, on what that is and, and what it means to, to us as developers? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Nougat is, uh, let's, let's kind of go back to like maybe a JavaScript example really quick. Um, JavaScript has NPM, which is the Node Package Manager. Uh, it's a package manager to maintain all of your dependencies that you might kind of use within a project. So that might be a library that you might use for certain functionality or other libraries that your libraries depend upon that you need to use. And so there's kind of two main concepts. There's a package manager, which is like the tooling that, uh, used to consume packages. And then the second part is kind of like a central repository or a central feed, which is a listing 
or a package registry of all the various package offerings on the the market or really the ecosystem in general. So, uh, you know, NPM is a good example because I think a lot of people know what that is. Um, PIP, which is the Python um, tooler installer, uh, is another uh, famous example. But the, the .NET equivalent is NuGet. And so there's a lot of different tooling for NuGet. Uh, you have the NuGet.exe, which is a CLI um, that d- .NET framework developers can use, but there's also the .NET CLI, which is .NET add package, and you can also browse for packages there as well. And of course, all that is uh, really tightly integrated into Visual Studio, where you'd have the NuGet package manager kind of user interface. And so you can browse for packages, you can see what's installed, you can update packages, a lot of that different stuff. And so um, really the two main components are kind of what I see as like package management in a nutshell is you have the tooling and then you have the registry and then it all kind of um, combines for your uh, unique projects. Yeah, and it's it's been a few, uh, it's been a few years since I've published anything to NuGet, but uh, I remember it being relatively straightforward, just creating a, a couple of files, you know, a couple of configs, and, and publishing to uh, to somewhere, uh, and then it magically becomes available. Um, but there's a, a certain kind of oddness, a certain amount of strangeness to anybody can publish a package, right? And so how do how do we discover packages? How do we know that the 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 name of the thing is in fact what what we're getting and it's safe to use and it's uh, not going to go anywhere and it's not going to be taken away from us if it becomes something that we depend on. Yeah, this is a quite a good question because um, most package managers uh, still exist in what we call like the wild west. Um, <laughs> not really, uh, not really much process. There's not much uh, regulation. Not, none of that type of stuff, right? Any anyone can go publish a package. Um, anyone can go publish a package that might even confuse or uh, mislead somebody. And this is these are the type of challenges that we have to deal with every single day. Um, there's a lot of different, uh, type of like cybersecurity, um, threats with regards to packages and package management. You have things like typo squatting where, uh, you know, you can take a name of a very, uh, a very uh, common or used package and what's one typo and that could own somebody's machine, right? Uh, you also have the idea of impersonation. Uh, you have man in the middle. You have all these different types of things. Uh, there's even a new um, concept, if people have read about this, called dependency confusion. And this one's a very unique one because how this one works is that if you have uh, two packages on two different feeds, you can you can potentially get confused by grabbing the newer version on a specific feed. And of course, there's a lot of security implications because if somebody were to, you know, take ownership of a feed and then publish something maliciously upstream, you know, you run into this idea of, you know, the same, same problems. And so there's a lot of these different types of things that just make uh, package management, um, you know, again, one of those things of how do we bring these types of ideas um you know, to the mainstream or let people become more aware of these things. I think that's the biggest thing is how do we know that the author is who they say they are? How do we know that, um, you know, we can trust the entity that publishes it or that this package has the integrity that we really uh, expect as, you know, our, 
within our companies or just kind of within our own policies. And so there's, there's a lot of that that kind of goes on. And it's still kind of a question of who is figuring out and uh, taking on these challenges. You have the whole package management ecosystem. Uh, you have uh, people over from uh, PyPy. Uh, you have people over from NPM, people from Go. Uh, you have crates with Rust. Uh, a lot of different groups are tackling the similar problems because it exists everywhere. Anywhere that you can download a package uh, from somebody who uh, authored it, of course, can be a risk, um, even if you do trust them. So there's a lot that kind of goes on. Um, and of course, we're always trying to just improve the security of, you know, what's known as a your secure supply chain or really your secure supply chains. Um, you know, they say that incidents don't really happen um, on developers' machines. They happen in people's DevOps. So that's kind of the the whole thing is um, how do we how do we work to make that a better experience for developers as well? So, so with NuGet, one thing that, um, well, I guess it, it kind of amazes me and perplexes me uh, sometimes, depending on the situation. Um, so, like, I'll be in Visual Studio and I'll be typing something, and I know that this this method should exist. Maybe it's an extension method or it's a class that that is in some package somewhere. And Visual Studio is like, oh, that package is here. You should download it. And I'm like, sure, install that for me. Everything's great. That part's fantastic. <laughs> At the same time, when um, when that doesn't work, uh, and uh, I guess part of this is is, is on Microsoft uh, Docs because even though the docs are getting a lot better, it's still sometimes it's really really hard to find a package that has this interface that you know should exist, but you don't know where to find it. Um, how do you how do you guys find the packages in the first place, like when it does work. And then are there any tips and tricks for finding a package when, when the automatic system doesn't work? Sure. So uh, a lot of the different types of suggestions that you get um, are kind of done intelligently with like machine learning. Um, so these are kind of models that are created based on um, all the open source code that is really out there in the world. So uh, we have a lot of different experiences that will kind of prompt you or kind of think of like what you're thinking with regards to say those types or members um, that you might be using or even the packages that you might need for the job to be done. So um, one recent thing that we shipped was uh, in 1610, you can actually get package recommendations. So this is kind of okay, we see that you're using this type of project. Um, we want to give you recommendations based on what we believe will help um, make your project a success. So this could be things like, you know, uh, data, so entity framework or something like that, or like uh, dependency injection libraries. It, it really just depends on the context that we understand um, for kind of what we should recommend you. And so uh, I think that kind of brings or segues into another point of, discoverability. I think this is the one of the biggest challenges for package managers. And it kind of has existed on like Linux package managers for such a long time too, is the things are out there, but we just don't know that they exist and um, are maintained or have docs or really a lot of different problems. And so we really are trying to Think about how do we help people discover what they need before they need it. Um, that's kind of one of the things that we're thinking about always is 
okay, how can we let you know ahead of time that this package supports what you need, um, say now and maybe uh, a year um, from now? Do they are they maintaining the library? Are you know do people find the li- uh, library to be useful? Uh, you know, is it a popular library in the ecosystem? A lot of those different types of things, um, and then it's kind of the other questions too are like sustainability and main maintainability of those libraries. So, uh, does the author is the author a one person uh, um, contributor or maintainer that has to you know? keep this library alive. I think that's a huge challenge. Uh, how, what's the community look like for that library as well? Uh, so is that, is, is there a thriving community that's actually helping the maintainers of that library kind of keep the lights on too? Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of other problems in the space too. Like, you know, what about financially? Are, are we supporting uh, authors in, in the ways that they need to be um, supported too? So there's a lot of these different types of things, but it really comes down to discovering and, and uh, how do we kind of prompt um, the, the, the gems uh, that nobody knows about? I mean, there's so many cool libraries. Uh, I mean, Nougat has somewhere of over like 340 unique or 340,000 unique uh, packages uh, on the platform. I mean, how many? How many do, do each each of you use? Right, like probably a, a couple hundred, and so it's really unique because we also have that other problem of what are the critical packages or the, the software that's being used by every .NET developer you can think of, and of course, most people can probably write down a list of what that is, but there are new packages almost daily that just have such cool functionality that nobody never nobody knows about. Uh, they never get downloaded. Um, and how do we kind of help people discover that? Uh, one thing that we've done recently was we added a README feature um, onto Nougat.org. So if you want to get to know the package a bit more, an author can publish a README just like you would in GitHub um, to kind of get an understanding of what the library does, how to install it, how to use it, all those different types of features, um, just so you can kind of see it straight up in the browser instead. Yeah, that, that's great because typically when I'm looking at a new package or, or I've discovered a new package through a blog post or somebody's Twitter account or, or somebody's mentioned something or we're looking to introduce functionality that I think surely there's a, a NuGet package for that. Uh, so I might go out to, to NuGet.org and, and browse the website, uh, leave NuGet.org through the links to the the project repo and and look through the project usually hosted on GitHub uh look looking through the contributions there how active is it how up to date is it are there any issues or vulnerabilities being discussed and tracked and and usually those are good indications of the health of a project and that it's a good selling point back to my team to introduce this package or this dependency back into our org right yeah, absolutely. And that's, that just brings up kind of another thought too, which is um, how you go about kind of selecting a dependency is going to be way different than how uh, John or Clayton might go out and select a dependency. And of course, you got to kind of add that layer of sophistication to what about the company you're, you work for and the policy that's underneath there too is there's all these different layers to the onion of personal selection, company selection, what's best or will be maintained for, say, the enterprise even. Uh, and so there's a lot that goes into it. And we 
don't really think about that sometimes. Uh, I like to keep the indie developer hat on where I'm like, oh, it'll be maintained in a year from now. I pick the project back up in a year and it hasn't had an update since I, <laughs> since I installed it. You know, So there's a lot of th- those different things that go on with regards to just package life cycles. Yeah, it's, it's definitely really, really easy as a developer to go, oh, I found this cool thing. Let me just install it um, without regard for uh, anything, really. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, the the security concerns, the maintainability concerns, are those, um, is there is there a currently any kind of uh, vetting group that goes through and verifies those things? I know with like NPM, there's... Uh, like a, a project to do security audits on on packages. Is there anything like that for NuGet? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we actually just released some tooling kind of to show the first experiences for this. So uh, NPM has kind of this auditing experience where every time that you'll install a package, it'll do a security um, scan for any known vulnerabilities at the time. And then it will warn you with the severities and kind of the understanding of what the advisory is so that you can kind of advise. Uh, we have very similar tooling as well in NuGet. Um, NuGet recently released our what we call package vulnerability auditing, or you can just think of it as uh, scanning known security vulnerabilities and providing the user you know, some type of information um, with regards to what's going on. So it's very similar. Um, this is on the .NET CLI today, but we have plans to kind of integrate this throughout all the tooling, such as you know Visual Studio and even potentially on .NET Restore, where when you restore uh, your project and you have, say, a, a critical severity of um, a vulnerability, you got to act, right? You can't leave those in your supply chain or else it could be catastrophic. Um, and so uh, we really want to kind of there's this pattern uh, with, with regards to kind of being aware is the first step. Um, the second thing is preventing. So if you're aware of something, you can prevent it the next time. So if you were aware of a security vulnerability, you can tell your coworker, don't install that dependency. We know that it has a known vulnerability. So then you prevented the next potential action. But then the third one, the third kind of stage is fixing them. Right. So you have them already. You need you uh, prevented them from going in at any other time. Uh, how do you actually go about fixing them? So this would be kind of our, you know, our final stage of also being able to audit your dependencies and then give some type of resolution to them. So the the traditional routes of fixing a dependency is that uh, the maintainer releases a new version that includes uh uh, fix. So, you know, the security vulnerability has been um, identified, it's been fixed, a uh, new package version is out. You then take on that dependency of the newest version. Um, there's also this concept of, t- of backporting as far as possible to, you know, the, the largely affected um, versions. So you might even see older versions um, get fixes as well and then publish potentially. But that doesn't happen often because we live in this semantic versioning world where it's kind of the newer versions will get those type of security guarantees. Um, And so the other method is, of course, you can just remove dependencies and try to find replacements for them. And so this is a lot harder though, right? Um, If you do need to deal with a vulnerability that uh, could do some damage to your supply chain, well, what do you do? Do you remove it from your supply chain completely? Do you find a suggested alternative to it? Um, Or do you leave it there? And then you kind of sit in the back of your mind of, 
I don't know if I'm going to get fired for this, you know, that type of deal. Uh, so, you know, it's, there's a lot of different ways to kind of address these things, but I think I'm in this like three-step framework of knowing, preventing, and uh, fixing is kind of where we're thinking with regards to security vulnerabilities and the auditing experiences. So what we kind of see is that you can kind of know about them today. So if you go to nuga.org uh, and you find any vulnerability notice, you'll you'll actually see them uh, before you go to Visual Studio or download you know, on the CLI or anything like that. You'll see it all on nuga.org, and it'll say, "Hey, these are the these are the actual versions that have a known vulnerability. Please avoid these." Is really what we're trying to say. Uh, we also have the .NET uh, CLI tooling where you know you will be able to list out um, any vulnerabilities in your projects or solutions. Um, but we really want to integrate all that tooling into the you know first party tooling of Visual Studio shows it to you when you're browsing for packages, when you're loading your projects. Uh, and then last but not least, that idea of being able to see these things every time that you actually retrieve the packages or restore them. And so that way we can kind of, you know, make everyone's uh, lives a little bit more secure by just kind of these, these different mechanisms that will help people take their own individual action. And I, I like possibly having those uh, vulnerability warnings uh, slash errors on uh, restore too, because then potentially you could get um, your DevOps or in your DevOps process, you could you could bring a halt to the deployment, put a fire underneath the business's butt to let you fix those problems. Exactly. And so that's a kind of like the importance of us making sure that the tooling has, uh, you know, sane exit codes so that you can be like, okay, this exit code <laughs> didn't work. Um, we're going to actually make a policy to say, you know, I'm not going to move through with the rest of my pipeline until this is resolved, those type of things. What about um, teams sort of creating NuGet packages uh, for internal support? So a lot of enterprises, um, you know, they have large software uh, suites even or, you know, that and you have code sharing between uh, applications, uh, code sharing between teams. Um, is there is there a story to make that better? Is there uh, um is there some recommendations as far as like when to and when and how to use NuGet uh, to to sort of share that code? Yeah, um, NuGet's been pretty much a you know has a centralized aspect to it with the NuGet.org feed, but also you know a decentralized um, aspect to it with regards to all the private feeds or any DevOps pipeline that you know your company might want to use. So there are some best practices. We recently published. Uh, documentation with regards to how you can kind of use these practices in combination to secure your own um, private feeds. So, you know, there's like these ideas of trying to minimize all of your feeds into one kind of um, central feed you're on your own, if that makes sense. So you vet all the dependencies that are being kind of streamed into it. And also you provide kind of the auditing of when dependencies go in with regards to pull pull requests, depend a bot, um, and those type of things. And so uh, with regards to shareability, of course, you know, you can just point somebody to your your feed, uh, authenticate them, and now they have access to, you know, all the different packages that you've created for your your company. And so uh, the kind of story is like there's a lot of different ways to share. You know, there's there's companies that have done 
hey, we get everything publicly through the nougat.org central feed. That's one of our approaches. But then all of our private controls and vendors and things like that go through a different feed. Um, you have people who do everything privately, where the policy is that it has to go through one feed through, say, like Azure DevOps or something. Um, you know, people use MyGit, people use all these other providers too. And so uh, it's kind of, again, it's kind of the whole wild west of there's a lot of ways you can kind of combine things, but there are generalized best practices per se of, you know, making sure that you're kind of streaming everything into one big central feed in a sense, um, and then consuming from kind of the idea of not getting into these situations where you have, like I mentioned earlier, that dependency confusion idea of, I have four different feeds. Um, I don't even know where this package is coming from, but I got it, <laughs> right? Yes. And uh, that has been one of the biggest challenges. And uh, we actually recently implemented some really cool functionality that you know I, I get excited about because uh, I haven't seen it for a while, which is we'll actually tell you exactly what source um, your packages come from if you look hard enough, right? And so this has been one of those things where it's like, now you know exactly where your packages are coming from. And there's a lot of other best practices that you can use on top of this, such as what's known as a lock file, um, which is a cool concept if you've ever heard of it. It's this idea that you can lock your dependencies into a specific, um, say, MD5 hash or a checksum of the package contents. So you will always get the exact package um, that you requested because it's the same hash. And so there's a lot of these things and, and best practices that can really lock you down further and secure you. Um, and it's a question I think that comes down to is, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing, right? Is it the idea of a lot of process and a lot of policy to be locked down and you know there's no chances or to use the platform as the kind of, you know, a decentralized way that it is. Yeah, I I have mixed feelings about a lock file. Um, it could be completely different with NuGet and .NET, but like with uh, with JavaScript, if I'm developing on a Windows machine, and you're developing on a Mac or a Linux machine, and we're both working on the same code base, and I do an npm install it's going to change parts of that log file because there are Windows-only packages that are the equivalent of the Linux or Mac-only packages. And so the log file just ends up kind of being junk. Like, it gets it gets deleted all the time because it's incompatible with the machine of the developer that it's currently on. Um, are those types of things a concern with a NuGet package, or a, sorry, a NuGet lock file with .NET being on Mac, Linux, Windows, you know, whatever? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the reason why is because, you know, lock files have that version control uh, sh uh, strictness to them, right? You as a developer, your your lock file uh, could be different by the time you actually check it in or that I pull it down. Um, and then you kind of have this, you know, this lock file hell potentially. Uh, and so, yes, this is a problem in every single ecosystem. Um, NPM with JavaScript, uh, Python and PIP, uh, NuGet and lock files. Uh, but they do serve their own unique um, value prop, which is security and uh, what we call like determinism. So you know exactly where you're getting that package from and uh, the contents of that package. So you're not really vulnerable per se. You actually have that guarantee that is provided to you. 
But the, you know, this is one of those things of adoption um, for those very reasons of having to check in a lock file um, to source control is very reason why a lot of people don't like them and also why people don't adopt them as much as um, arguably the people from the package management side will say, please adopt these things because you will make all these problems go away. And a lot of these problems do go away. You don't have man in the middle issues. You don't have dependency confusion issues. You don't have typo squatting issues because you can't make typos. You'd have to check your lock file to make sure that the typos don't exist, right? So these are the things that kind of go away with the, the introduction of lock files, but it's still just this huge question of how do we get people to adopt it? Um, that's that's the big challenge for us. Yeah, at, at, uh, at the companies that I've worked at, the solution that we had for the, the lock file hell was um, developing using containers because then the the system that the application is running in and that the the package restore is happening in is the same system on everybody's machine um so if anybody else has my problem with the log files that's that's a solution but um, <laughs> <laughs> um it I, I was curious i didn't know if it would be a thing for .NET. uh it's interesting that it that it could be yeah, with regards to kind of like the, the cross-platform story, there's not necessarily problems in that space, but it is more similar to exactly what you're saying is how do you get developers all in the same you know direction and how do you kind of avoid that? Or, you know, you might have like CICD or Docker containers, those type of things, just to avoid that pain. So before hitting record, you had mentioned TikTok, and I'm I'm really curious. We didn't dive into it at all, so I don't know what we're getting into here. Uh, so so what what were you going to to share with us about TikTok? Yeah, um, you know I'm I'm a fairly younger guy. Um, I turned thirty next year, but uh, uh, it's been interesting. Um, I've been kind of interested in this whole idea of. How do people like use social media as a developer and furthering their career? And so I took this experiment of TikTok was this new platform. Uh, and I'm like, all right, is there any potential that there's a market for, say, middle-aged developers who want to further their career on TikTok, right? And you'd be surprised. There are. There's so many people out there who are trying to make these career swaps uh, midlife, right? Like they go come from a blue collar background, construction, whatever it might be. And they realize that's not what they want. They actually want to be programmers. They want to become developers. Uh, they want a new life from what they currently have because they know that there's something potentially better out there. And uh, one of the most interesting things is I started to post content uh, every day for a while. Um, I'm, I'm really inconsistent when it comes to content just because of work and being a father and things like that. But, um, when I started this whole experiment, it, it kind of blew up, like blew up, right? I created some of these videos of just things that I thought were just everyday knowledge drops of, Hey, learn this language and you can make six figures, that type of deal. Or uh, here are the best free resources that I've used that helped me get to the to where I am. And these things just exploded. People started to, you know, like really um, take on to these things. And, you know, eventually these platforms get a little bit, uh, you know, saturated with all that type of content. It's just everyone will tell you what language to learn, what uh, resources to use and whatnot. So I thought, okay, well, how do we actually pivot a little bit? 
So I started to pivot to this whole idea of like, you know, reinvent your career. How do you make a sustainable career in programming and also helping those developers really find that, that, uh, that niche of, Hey, go learn something that is like the unsexy programming language, because there are so many jobs out there that, uh, you know, are just waiting for you. I bet my whole life on, on .NET, which is a very interesting thing back in the day, thinking about it. I, I gave 10 whole years of my life to this idea of being a .NET developer and having this background, and it paid off for me because it wasn't the most like upcoming um, choice at the time for me. This was the safe option. It was all the enterprises were using .NET. Every job in my area was using .NET. Uh, every contract I wanted was in .NET. And so from my perspective, I put it all together of saying, Hey, why don't we actually just like make bets on things that actually will help us in our career? And then we can choose stuff later. If you want to learn JavaScript, um, TypeScript, uh, Python, uh, Rust, whatever it is, like you can do that, but it's more of a question of kind of what's in your surroundings. So we're kind of, kind of going from the thought of like, what jobs can you get? And then starting from that rather than this whole idea of like just going with what somebody's going to tell you on the internet. It can work out for you. Never worked out for me. I was told to go learn uh, Ruby on Rails at the time. I couldn't do that. I didn't really like Ruby. At, um, and also the Mac and Windows, or sorry, the Windows support wasn't that great. And I couldn't really do that because I didn't own a Mac at the time. So it's like, there's a lot of advice that people are going to tell you. And um, that's where like this whole TikTok thing came out where I just started creating these skits of just funny things that I thought were kind of, humor in the dev world um some of some of them did well and some of them flopped tremendously right uh and then you know this this idea of pivoting to just helping people that's really been my goal in um at least my whole career is how do i help people kind of empower them to do more like i think everybody is capable of doing so much in their lives like even from the position of being a developer or a program manager or an engineering manager or whatever like i i really believe that you know um there's just so much potential in everyone and how do we help unlock that potential for each other and that's why i really like this like podcast this whole idea is that you're empowering people to, you know, reach their financial goals, but also, hey, there's more than just fi six figures as a developer, right? Like there's a lot of rewarding things that you can uh, get from this mentoring others and uh, helping people with their challenges. Like there's so much, uh, I guess, reward that kind of came from that whole experiment of TikTok. I learned about people I never really thought existed. Uh, I learned the challenges that people have with regards to learning to code. Um, it really honestly made me develop a lot of empathy for uh, people I don't know. And uh, with that also comes a lot of hate. Like a lot of people will tell you like, who are you to tell me like, <laughs> you know, this advice or, uh, you know, you're just, uh, you know, some privileged person or something. And the, it all kind of come back to experiences of like, yeah, the, you're right. Like um, I, you might have those experiences coming back of saying, I was really lucky when I was young. Um, I got acquired in a startup. I was really lucky with that too. Um, you know, I, I, I worked for Microsoft. I was really lucky with that as well. These are all really humbling, but also um, experiences that help uh, you develop that empathy of seeing where other people are coming from. Some people don't want to learn to code because they, they see this as like, 
oh, you had everything handed to you, but they don't see like all the work that went into it as well. Uh, where I'd spend every single night, you know, learning about like authorization in ASP.NET <laughs> web API, right? And so uh, there's a lot of things that go into it. And I just thought this whole thing with TikTok was just a, it's just crazy. There's a whole upcoming generation of new developers. And I don't even think we're really looking there. And there's so many people who grew up um, building computers now, gaming on those computers. And then all of a sudden they get this side interest of, hey, I want to make some money by doing something on the computer. And programming becomes that natural next step like it did for me. Like I used to play uh, video games when I was in junior high and high school. And the, the next evolution of that was, hey, can I build a website for my guild? Or how do I build a program to match my Counter-Strike matches? Like those all kind of came from that natural curiosity. And I think I think we're into this whole next generation of uh, developers where, you know, how do we help and how do we get involved and, and make it easier for them? Uh, because I think it's, there's a lot of information out there and how do we help put them on the right direction? And speaking of putting people in the right direction, uh, and perhaps TikTok. Uh, do you have any resources that you might direct our listeners to uh, who might be wanting to get set off there or trying to get started with a new git? Maybe they're trying to pack, you know, uh, release some of their own packages. Uh, you know, where where can you direct them? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, for new .nets uh, or new .net developers, um, I would say that the best resources are. I think Microsoft's documentation is fantastic. Of course, I'm a little biased because I contribute a, a bit of documentation to it. Um, but to be honest, uh, probably one of the most accessible and just in your face, like you're always seeing Microsoft documentation. Uh, you can't go wrong with regards to getting started with like a language like C Sharp or .NET. Um, with Microsoft documentation. So definitely any of the docs there, uh, try.net is a great resource as well. Uh, a lot of samples over on GitHub too. Uh, with regards to kind of, you know, accelerating your career and like making it sustainable and whatnot, I have a website, johndouglas.dev. Um, my TikTok as well is just my name, John Douglas. Uh, probably find me anywhere else on the internet with just my name as well, John Douglas somewhere, whether it's a blog, whether it's um, YouTube or something like that. Uh, and, you know, I just kind of on the side of everything I do outside of Microsoft and NuGet uh, is trying to help developers kind of find that next footing or, you know, make that life change um, in a sustainable fashion. Because I think a lot of people can really burn out from this career. And we're kind of seeing a lot of that um, just in the last year alone. So I want to really kind of put the emphasis on things can wait. And also, you know, you can have a lot of energy, you know, how do you put that in the right places rather than just, you know, burning out to a crisp and never, never wanting to use, uh, you know, uh, language again. So uh, you've kind of already uh, gone here, but if you could distill it down or, or speak directly to uh, some individuals, uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Yeah, uh, I would say that I, I said the best piece of advice that I've ever had in my career has kind of been this idea of, um, I think it's a Richard Feynman quote, which is if you kind of feel that you like are the smartest person in a room, you need to find a bigger room. 
And of course, you need to find mentors that help you become you know, that smartest person in the room to then find the room. Uh, when you work at a big tech company uh, where the rooms are very, very large and there are very, very bright individuals that you're never going to kind of surpass in certain regards, you got to be a little bit more creative and think outside the box. So find the unique thing that you're good at. Uh, if you are more, you know, logical and technical oriented, you know, follow that path. If you're better at solving uh, problems and working with people, you know, follow those paths. And so kind of finding your unique strength or kind of what makes uh, separates you from others, I think is one thing that people don't find until too late or until they naturally uh, are seen that way. And so use those to your advantages. Um, don't try to do it all. Uh, find the one unique thing that sets you apart from others. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That was John Douglas. John is a technical product manager, YouTuber, and podcaster. He enjoys exploring the systems, strategies, and tools that help us live happier, healthier, and more productive lives. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. Catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Thank you.